I don't know how you or your family celebrated Christmas growing up. Um, I know a lot of families do uh, Christmas lists to cer- certain degrees. Uh, sometimes the uh, you know it, those who would um, be writing letters to Santa or maybe writing or making lists out for parents. However, it works out. But I know in a lot of families, what we'll see is there'll be a list of things. These are the things I really wish for. Um, I wish for. Uh, this certain gift, or I wish for, wish for this certain food, whatever it might be. Uh, I remember growing up, uh, I, I didn't have a formal list, but my parents would just kind of ask me, and I would kind of tell them what I was wishing for, uh, what I would even say hoping for. Uh, but actually, I want to talk a little bit today about hope, and I want to say that a wish is totally different than hope. See, Christmas time, as you're wishing for gifts or you're wishing for something to happen, you are kind of on the edge of your seat wondering whether you're going to get that one item that you've been wishing for all year long. I remember as a kid, whenever I would get a gift, it seemed like no matter what the gift was, if I'd ever asked for it throughout the year, I would jump up and down and say, this is what I've always wanted. This is what I've always wanted. And I'm sure that wasn't actually true, but in my childhood mind, it was like, okay, I've been wanting this for about a week. This is what I've always wanted. Um, but then I also remember that there were sure times of disappointment, although they, I don't really have any fun, like memories, like really crisp memories of being disappointed, but I'm sure I didn't get everything I always wished for. Uh, and yet I always, uh, was blessed of course on Christmas. Now my mom came to the point though, and I'm glad they're not here today. And uh, if anyone sees them, don't tell them I use them as an illustration, um, Although Slade used his mom and she was here, so, uh, you know, I don't know. But anyway, that's a whole other story. No, uh, my parents, uh, my mom came to a point where one thing on her list every year, no matter what, was always a new Christmas sweater. Not an ugly Christmas sweater, but just a nice Christmas sweater to wear uh, to our, my grandparents when we would go. Uh, after we would open all our gifts and uh, we would have breakfast, we'd load into the van and we would drive to my grandparents. And the one thing that my mom always wanted, always wished for, was a new Sweater, and my dad would always get her one, and it was always a nice uh, sweater. She would put it on. She loved it. And even our, as kids, we knew every Christmas, mom's going to get a sweater. And really, what it really became is more of less of a wish and more of a hope. Like uh, she knew that it was coming, and so she would hope for the t- for the day that she would get it. She would hope for that day when Christmas would come. She had confident expectation. That's what hope is all about. It's being confident in expecting something to happen. And my mom got to the point where every Christmas she would confidently expect my dad to get her a Christmas sweater. Until the one fateful Christmas. I don't know why, but my dad forgot to get the sweater. And I don't remember how old I was, but my sister and I, even as young children, we still remember to this day that one Christmas. It wasn't pretty in our house. Um, Mom had to wear a year-old sweater to to Christmas. Love you, Mom and Dad, if you listen to this. Um, But uh, it was so interesting to watch the disappointment that she had to face. And it was a silly sweater, and now it's all done with and over with, and my dad has not made that mistake again. Um, But... It's funny that that's the memory we remember, but it's because it's something that she hoped for. It wasn't just a random wish that she put on a list, but it was something she confidently expected and then didn't get it. And and unfortunately, people can do that a lot to us, you know, where people can 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 not give us the thing that we are so hoping for, and it can destroy us. 
But there is a difference between wishing and hoping. You know, as a kid, I put my wish list out there for Christmas. And if I got some of it, that was great. I knew I wasn't going to get all of it. Uh, now, as an adult, it's a little different. Uh, my parents will basically ask, hey, what do you want for Christmas? I'll tell them what I want. And then I have a hope and a confident expectation that indeed that's what's going to show up on Christmas. We had our family Christmas yesterday. I actually bought the gifts that my parents were going to give to us. It was a weird thing. But I knew what I was going to get. So instead of just wishing and saying, I wonder if I'm going to get this, I wonder if it's going to be there, I wonder if my parents are going to do this for me as a kid, now it became a hope and not just a wish. I looked For weeks I knew what was coming and so I hoped for that and I couldn't wait to open it and, and use it. Now, we're going to talk a lot about hope today because we, as we are talking about the book of Matthew in chapter 1, this is exactly what comes to the world and comes to Israel, uh, is hope. And I want to keep in mind, I give that whole illustration just to say, when we talk about hope, we are not talking about just a, a wish list, a dream that's out there and can't really be attained. No, we're talking about a hope, something that is confidently expected. But unlike my dad and unlike others who may fall back on, their, uh, on, on what is expected, God will never do that. He has given promises of hope and he is the one that we can confidently expect will be faithful to his promise. And so as we talk about hope around Christmas, I want us to keep that in mind. Hope is confidence, expecting that God is going to do what he says he's going to do little bit of background as we looked at the book of Matthew so far, if you haven't been with us. Matthew chapter 1, we see that Matthew is be- begins his gospel with a genealogy. Before he gets into any part of the narrative of Christ's life and, and Jesus' life and how he lived, uh, before he gets to any of that, he gives background. He gives perspective. And he says, look, this is where Jesus came from. This is the line uh, th- that uh, he has come from, the people that have come before him. And what this genealogy is, is it's a beginning. It's to show the beginning of Jesus started, not just when Jesus was born in that, in, in the, uh, in the main, laid in the manger after he was born in the stable. It didn't start then. Like, the Messiah coming to the world, that wasn't just then. That wasn't the beginning of the story. The beginning of the story went all the way back. Uh, and Matthew goes all the way back to Abraham. If we looked at Luke's genealogy, it goes all the way back to Adam himself. And we see that it's important to understand the roots of Jesus. And remember again that this is the legal line of Jesus. This is traced through the fathers. Even though he's not a blood son of Joseph, he still has the legal rights as a son of Joseph, which we'll talk about a little bit more even next week. <clears throat> With that being the, in the mindset, in this genealogy, we see that Jesus is the Messiah that the Jews have waited for, the anointed one, the one who had come to set them free. He was the awaited Messiah. And he says that right in verse 1. This is the genealogy of Jesus Christ. The word Christ means Messiah. Jesus is also seen as a Jewish man in the fact that he is in the royal line. Because he is from Abraham and he is from David, therefore he is not only Jewish, which is important because that is what the uh, prophecies have foretold, that there would be a Jewish man, a Hebrew man that would come to be the Messiah. But also he is a son of David and from the royal line. He was the king. So he is from the royal line and he is Jewish. So then the first week we looked at this uh, genealogy, we saw that indeed through Abraham, Jesus is the promised blessing, not only to Israel, but to the whole world. That God made a covenant with Abraham, and he said, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to bless you forever. 
And God fulfills that promise through the person of Jesus Christ. As Jesus comes, God himself comes to be a man. That is the fulfilled promise of the blessing that God gave to Abraham way back in the book of Genesis. But then the next week, last week, we looked at David. And that through David, Jesus is not only seen as the promised blessing through Abraham, but Jesus is also the promised king of Israel because David was a king of Israel and and he has promised the throne forever. And Jesus is the fulfillment of the throne, sitting on the throne of David forever. But also as we look through scripture, we saw that Jesus isn't only the king of just the Jews. Jesus is the king of the world. He is the sovereign one, the one who is over all, and that we should treat him as such. And we should live in a way that is in light of his kingship. So that's where we've been so far in the first chapter of Matthew. We've looked at the first 11 verses. And uh, this, is our last, uh, this is our last section of the genealogy. We're actually going to have this sermon, and the next week we're going to look at what happens right after this genealogy at the end of chapter 1, uh, because there's some interesting things there that we don't want to miss. But this is the last section of the genealogy that we'll be looking at this morning. And as we've looked at the ghosts of Christmas past, those who came before Jesus, before that first Christmas, we're now going to look at the ghosts of Christmas past as Jesus is the promised hope. So if you'll go with me to the book of Matthew chapter 1, and I'm not going to go back to the beginning and read all those names again. Uh, We're going to start in verse 12, and we're going to read uh, through verse 17. And after the the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of uh, Sheltiel, and Sheltiel the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of Abud, and Abud the father of Elikim, and Elikim the father of Azor, and, A- and Azor the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Achim, and Achim the father of Iliad, and Iliad the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar the father of Mathan, and Mathan the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ." So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the, de- the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. So uh, we get to the end of the genealogy, and we see that now, all of a sudden, we've looked at a list of people who, is, we just look at the Old Testament, we can see tons of stuff about them. You know, if we looked at uh, Abraham, Jacob, Isaac, even Judah, and those who followed them, we can look back to Genesis and we can see what happened with these men and we can understand more about them. And then the second bit was uh, David and those kings who came from him. And we can look back to First and Second Kings and First and Second Chronicles and we can learn more about these men who were part of Jesus' uh, ancestry line. But now we get to this next section and it's interesting Really, out of this list, and I'm not saying you won't find any of them listed other places, because you will, but really the only one that we have substantial information about is Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel is one that is sent from from the exiles, and he is sent back to Jerusalem to start rebuilding the temple. Uh, But other than that, this is a list, forgive me for saying this, but in a lot of ways, this is a list of nobodies. It's a list of names that we don't really know much about. It's a list of people that, although there might be some information throughout Scripture, you might be able to find bits and pieces, we don't have a lot of accounts of these men. And it's interesting that even in that, Matthew would choose to use these men to show the lineage of Jesus. But I, so I want to focus more than just on who these people were. I want to focus on what their setting was. 
What was it that made these people special, interesting in this genealogy? Well, this first point we're going to look at is that Jesus is the promised hope for the Jews. Jesus is the promised hope for the Jews. But why did Israel need hope? And that's the question we're going to look at because this, first, this part of this genealogy shows this one thing. That Jesus is the descendant of exiled people. Jesus is the descendant of exiled people. You see, Israel, if you know the history, uh, they, uh, uh, you know, they were found, obviously Abraham started and then it goes through to Isaac, to Jacob, and then they go to Egypt, and you remember Moses comes and they're all slaves in Egypt and he leads them out back to their land and they've resettled the land and then they have judges that rule over their nation uh, after Joshua you know, conquers much of the land, judges rule, and then kings rule. And in that kingship, you'll know that after, um, after Solomon, uh, we see that there's a split between Israel and Judah. There's two separate kingdoms, all part of one big nation, and yet two different kingdoms. One in Judah, one that's called Israel. Uh, and Judah is the one that God is, that David's line is going through. But in all of this, Eventually, Israel, the, the ten tribes of Israel, are taken into exile. And not too long after that, although a little bit longer, because God, there were some better kings in Judah, and God you know, preserved them longer, Judah ends up getting taken into exile by Babylon. You can see all of this throughout the Old Testament. You can look in history. This is truth, that the nation of Israel... Uh, after their split and after all the, the sins that they committed, they both, both sides went to idolatry. God says enough is enough. You haven't listened to my word. You haven't listened to my prophets. It's time for you to be exiled to another nation. And they get conquered. And it'd be really easy to say, wow, God failed his people. And it can get to that idea of, well, there's no hope for God's people. So is God just going to leave them behind? Israel needed hope. Jesus is the descendant of exiled people. You know, Daniel also talks about this. Uh, Daniel, right at the beginning of the book, Daniel in chapter 1, uh, really the first few verses, talks about uh, the setting that Daniel is in is that he was taken out of Jerusalem, taken out of Israel, and taken to Babylon. And there was, uh, there was two or three different phases of the exile, and by the time it was done, everyone would be out. But the understanding is that there is an exile that has happened, and the, Israel no longer has a home. Judah and Israel, both uh, all 12 tribes are, are displaced. They don't have a home. And so therefore, it would be very easy for them to be hopeless. In the midst of that lack of hope, we see that God makes a covenant with Israel. We see that God is a God of covenants. Remember, covenant is an agreement or a promise. That's the simplest way to remember what a covenant is. It is a promise. And God has made a promise and a covenant with Israel, even in the midst of their state of exile. And to show that Jesus came from them is no doubt to show that even in the time where there was no hope, God was still working. Even when there was a time where nobody had a home, God was preparing the way for the future to give Israel a hope again. And God was working behind the scenes, even as Israel would have seen no hope. But this covenant that was made with Israel, we see in the book of Jeremiah. If you'd turn there with me this morning, the book of Jeremiah, we're going to jump around to a few different passages. It is important that we see the covenant that God makes to these people who are exiled. Jeremiah 29 is the chapter we're going to start in. Many of you know a verse from Jeremiah 29, Jeremiah 29, 11. It's a very famous verse. It talks about having a hope and a future, which we'll talk about in just a second. Uh, in, 
In this, though, let's remember to take that verse in context. And that verse was written to the people of Israel at a time in which they had no home. And in Jeremiah 29, I'll give you a little bit more background before we just read verse 11. But Jeremiah 29, 1 through 2 says this, These are the words of the letter that Jeremiah the prophet sent uh, from Jerusalem to the surviving elders of the exiles and to the priests, the prophets, and all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had taken into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. This was after King Jeconiah and the queen mother, the eunuchs, and the officials of Judah and Jerusalem, the craftsmen and the metal workers had departed from Jerusalem. All right, if you remember that name, Jeconiah, he is also one of those kings that was mentioned in the genealogy of Jesus. All right, and so what we see is after he's exiled, after the exile has been, they've been brought out of Jerusalem and taken to Babylon, Jeremiah is writing this letter. So that's just to give you the context of why Jeremiah is writing what he's about to write. He is writing to a group of people who have been exiled from their home, that God has allowed another nation to come in and take them as, as they have not been faithful to him. Later on in Jeremiah 29 then, with that as our background, and we're not going to read this whole chapter, it would take too long to read everything that we'd have to read, but I would encourage you on your own time to, to read this full passage. But in verses 10 through 14, uh, this is what we see uh, as part of this letter, what Jeremiah is writing to the exiles. And remember, God is telling Jeremiah what to write. For thus says the Lord in verse 10, When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me and when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord. And I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. As we read these verses, we see that God is making a promise or a covenant to the people of Israel. And he says, I'm going to bring you back. This isn't the end. This exile isn't the end. There's, I'm going to bring you back. He specifically says after 70 years, I'm going to bring you back to the land. And he says, because, and you're going you're gonna to look to me and you're going to worship me again. And he says, this is a promise I'm giving to you. Jeremiah continues this idea even as we continue through the book of Jeremiah. But let's look at chapter 30, verses 1 through 9. The same idea is also seen here. And you're also... Um, going to see just a little bit bigger picture here in Jeremiah chapter 30. Jeremiah 31 through 9. The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, write in a book for all the words that I have spoken to you. For behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will restore the fortunes of my people, Israel and Judah, says the Lord. And I will bring them back to the land I gave to their fathers, and they shall take possession of it. These are the words that the Lord spoke concerning Israel and Judah. Thus says the Lord, we have heard a cry of panic, of terror, and no peace. Ask now and see, can a man bear a child? Why then do I see men with their hands on his stomach like a woman in labor? Why has every face turned pale? Alas, that day is great, there is none like it. It is a time of distress for Jacob, yet he shall be saved out of it. And it shall come to pass in that day, declares the Lord of hosts, that I'll break his yoke from off your neck, and I'll burst your bonds, and foreigners shall be... No more make a servant of him, but they shall serve the Lord their God and David their king, whom I will raise up for them. Interesting passage here where Jeremiah says once again, I know things are really, really bad. He says that in a lot of different words. He's 
can a man have a baby, and yet why does it look like men are in labor? That's his, that is his illustration for how bad things are. The, the pain that is being seen in the people of Israel. And God says, I'm going to break that away and you're going, to be re, you're going to be restored. It's a promise that was given. But there's a piece in this promise that Israel didn't quite get and that Jeremiah is going to talk a little bit more in chapter 31. But at the end of this, it says this, But they shall serve the Lord their God and David their king, whom I will raise up for them. Now wait a minute, David's dead, right? He's been gone a long time by this time. So is David going to be resurrected? This is what's going on here. Well, we already saw, and this is obvious throughout the Old Testament, that David, when it's mentioned, it's talking about his line. It's talking about his covenant that God has made with David. And who would be the one who would be David, their king? Well, it would be one that comes from David, which we just saw in the genealogy in Matthew, is Jesus Christ himself. So Jesus, as the king, is the ultimate hope that Israel can have. I don't believe they, com- they completely understood that. I think they were just looking at the fact that they're going to be restored as a nation. They'll be restored to the land. Jeremiah tries to get them to see the spiritual implications, the spiritual blessing, the spiritual hope that they can have later on in chapter 31. Chapter 31, you just turn over a page or two. And in chapter 31, verses 31 through 34, Jeremiah continues to give hope to Israel. And this is... This is talking about spiritual blessing and spiritual hope. In chapter 31, verse 31, this is what we read in Jeremiah. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, although I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. And the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. This is God's promise that is to give Israel hope. Not only is it a physical promise that they're going to be restored, they're going to be brought out of exile, they're going to be able to live in their land again, but there's also a promise, a spiritual promise, that there is hope, that they will one day be the Lord's again, that they will, their, God's law will be within them. It will be written on their hearts. They will be God's people again. Uh, that that uh, people, they will be able to know God, and finally that they will be forgiven of their sins. Now, if you, list, if you listen to that list of things that God is promising, it's pretty obvious where the ultimate fulfillment of that will come from. And that is going to be Jesus, and we'll see that in just a moment. But although Israel was sinful, this last point of point one, although Israel was sinful, he just said, you broke my covenant. I was your husband. What he's saying there is basically, you prostituted yourself. You left me for another And you did that and you sinned, but don't worry, because I am still going to make a promise with you. I love you enough that I'm going to give you hope. And even though Israel was sinful, God is faithful to his promise. God is faithful to his promise. This promise that God made was, first of all, as I said, physical. They would go back to the land. But Israel has yet to receive the full fulfillment of the promises of God. 
Uh, and it's interesting to see. So they come back to the land, right? They come back to the land. Uh, and what happens after they come back to the land, uh, they rebuild the temple, they rebuild the walls, the city of Jerusalem is, is rebuilt. But keep in mind that they never really have a nation again throughout the time between the Old Testament and the New Testament. If you know what happened during that time, basically uh, after the Persians took over Babylon and therefore took over Israel, uh, the Greeks came in, Alexander the Great, we all know his name, uh, he he conquered most of the world, and as he did that, uh, everything became Greek. Uh, Israel became part of the Greek Empire. And then after Alexander died, many successors came, and, and the ca- went and, uh, came and went. And uh, there was always a foreign uh, power over Israel. After that, for a little bit of time, you know that Rome then came in, uh, about... 60, 70 uh, BC, they come in and they take over the world that the Greeks once owned, and the Romans now are in control of Israel. You see, they were restored back to their land, but they still have been in a perpetual state of hope. They need hope. They're still hopeless. They're in a perpetual state of hopelessness because even though God has restored them to their land, they still aren't a people. They still aren't a nation. And what is God going to do to give them hope? And that's where we find the fact that Jesus comes on the scene on that first Christmas day. 400 years of silence between the Old Testament and New Testament in which there were no prophets that came to speak to the people. And so there's been a whole long time from the exile to coming back to now just questioning. Where, 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 is, where is God? Where is the hope that's been promised? Where are the promises that God gave us? And for 400 years, people have been wondering. And for 400 years, people are hopeless. And then Jesus is born on that first Christmas day. And hope has come to Israel, even though they don't really know it or understand it. Say, well, where do we, how do I know that all this comes together? Am I just making all this up? Absolutely not. Let's go to the book of Hebrews. Book of Hebrews. Book of Hebrews chapter 8. This is gonna, we're gonna do a similar thing to what we just did in Jeremiah. We're gonna look at sections of Hebrews here. Hebrews chapter 8, verses 6 through 12. That's where we're gonna start. Hebrews chapter 8, verses 6 through 12. You know, the book of Hebrews is, entitled Hebrews because this was a message to the Hebrew people, to Israel. Hebrews chapter 8, once again, verses 6 through 12. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent than the, uh, than the old as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. For he finds fault with them when he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, for they did not continue in my covenant. So I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts, and, they, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people." And they shall not teach, each one his own neighbor, and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful towards their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. And speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. The writer of Hebrews, uh, whoever that might be, as they're talking to the, the people of Israel, he says, he quotes something. Does this sound familiar to anybody? 
When I was reading that, you were like, wait, didn't he already read this? I hope that's what you were thinking. That means you were paying attention. Uh, This passage is a direct quote from Jeremiah. It's a... The writer of Hebrews is going back to Jeremiah and saying, look, it's been fulfilled. And this whole thing that Jeremiah was talking about, the hope that you can have. Remember, uh, you know, Jeremiah 29, 11, it gives you a future and a hope. Well, the real hope that they're getting is actually Jesus. And that's what the writer of Hebrews says. He starts by saying the new covenant is through Jesus. And that's, it's quoted there. You can't, you can't uh, argue against that. Jesus is the fulfillment of the promise to Israel to bring real hope. To fulfill everything that God had said in Jeremiah. In case we're still wondering over in chapter 9. Verses 11 through 15. Chapter 9, 11 through 15 in the book of Hebrews. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come. Then through the greater and more perfect tent not made with hands nor of this creation. He entered once for all into the holy places. Not by means of the blood of goats and calves. But by means of his own blood. Thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God to purify our conference from dead works to serve the living God. Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance since a death has occurred, occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant so once again what is this passage telling us saying jesus as the high priest has established this new covenant that god promised to israel way back in the book of jeremiah and he says look uh, that in the old covenant you'd have to sacrifice animals and their blood would be what would be required of you to give to to make amends for your sins but jesus died and now he makes purification for all time And that is said here in Hebrews, and it is clear when he says he is a mediator of a new covenant. That we have a promised eternal inheritance. That because of his death, our new covenant is true. So Jesus is the fulfillment of the new covenant. One last passage in chapter 10. Chapter 10, this is a little longer, but we're going to read 12 through 23. Same idea that we just read, but just to confirm this one more time. Chapter 10, verse 12. That, but when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us after, for after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. That should sound really familiar. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering needed for sin. Therefore, brothers, since we have a confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, uh, by the new and living way that he opened for us the curtain that is through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised, this is key, for he who promised is faithful. He who promised is faithful. God promised. He quotes Jeremiah again. It says God promised. That promise comes as forgiveness through the blood of Jesus 
Christ. See, Israel didn't get it, but when, G- when God was giving them their promise in Jeremiah that even though you're hopeless, even though you have no home, there is hope on the way, and they thought that they would be restored, and that was what their hope was, but their hope needed to be much deeper. Their hope needed to be that the Messiah, Jesus, would come to make a new covenant through his blood. And that's what he did. God gave a promise and he followed through because he is faithful. He who promised is faithful. So we spent a lot of time on point one, that Jesus is the promised hope for the Jews. We looked at Hebrews, looked at Jeremiah. There was a promise to the Jewish nation that has come true, not only partially through physical promises, but also through the person of Jesus. I believe there's still physical promises that are still yet to come for Israel, but for now he's given them the most important hope that they can receive. And that is Jesus and his death for the forgiveness of sins. As we've looked at every other week, as we looked at the genealogy, this doesn't end with Israel. God didn't come just to save Israel. God came to save the world. And so the second point we look at today as we look at some other passages is that Jesus is not only the promised hope of Israel, but Jesus is the promised hope for the world. He is the promised hope for the world. The first thing we're going to see in Isaiah 42 verses 1 through 4 is that Jesus brings hope to all nations. Jesus brings hope to all nations. If you will turn there with me to Isaiah chapter 42 verses 1 through 4. Isaiah is prophesying about the coming Messiah, and this is what he says. Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen, and whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him, and he will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard on the street. A bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. This passage talking about the Messiah says he's coming not only for Israel, but he is coming to bring justice to the nations. Listen, you look around our world today, you talk about hopelessness, there's very little justice. It seems that the people who are abusing continue to abuse, and the people who are abused continue to be abused in all these different senses of the word. That we look around this world and it seems hopeless. It seems like there is no justice to be found. And yet we're told in Isaiah that the Messiah, the one who would come from Israel, not only is going to bring justice to Israel, but going to bring justice to all the nations. And justice is definitely seen in the death of Christ, but I believe still yet to come in his return as well. That Jesus brings hope to all nations that the justice that he brings and will still bring even more of can give us hope. The same idea is in our next point, and that is that Jesus brings hope to the Gentiles. All the nations is referring to all the different nations of the world, all the people groups, including Israel. But God makes a very clear statement in the New Testament that not only did Jesus come for the Jews to then be a blessing to the nations, but he came to save the Gentiles and give Gentiles like you and I hope. And that's what we see in the book of Romans. Book of Romans going over to the New Testament. I know we're in a lot of different places. 
But hope is such a theme throughout scripture, we can't miss this. And hope comes through Jesus, and this is seen over and over and over again. The book of Romans, we're going to start in verse 15, or chapter 15, sorry. Romans 15. And just listen as we read these verses for hope. There's hope in all of these verses. Romans 15, 8 through 13. For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised, that's the Jews, to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs. Remember Abraham, Isaac, Jacob? And in order that, he might, in order that the Gentiles might also glorify God for his mercy. As it is written, therefore I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. And again it is said, rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And again, praise the Lord, all ye Gentiles, and all the peoples extol him. And again Isaiah says, the root of Jesse will come, even he who arises to rule the Gentiles. In him will the Gentiles hope. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace and believing, so that by the power of his Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. Jesus is the one who came to give hope. And this wasn't a new concept. This was seen throughout the Old Testament, in Second Samuel, in Deuteronomy, in Psalm, in Isaiah. All of these different books are quoted and referenced or paraphrased here to show that God came, Jesus came to give hope not only to Israel, but also to Gentiles like you and like I. Me. I don't know. Uh, Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 through 22. It's written to those who are Gentiles and were not Jews, and this is what Paul writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Therefore, remember that at one time you were Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made by the flesh in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenant of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, who you, you who are once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of the commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, making peace. And he might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, therefore killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to those of you who were far off and peace to those who were near. And through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Here in Ephesians we're told that before Christ we had no hope. Gentiles had no hope hope and yet through christ we have hope again and so jesus is the promised hope for the nations jesus brings hope to the gentiles not only israel and like nations as people but the gentiles all people throughout the bible throughout the world and that brings us to our last point jesus brings hope to all people it's kind of redundant, I get this. Nations, Gentiles, people, but we can't miss this point. That God, through Jesus, has brought hope to the whole world. 1 Timothy chapter 4. 1 Timothy chapter 4. 
1 Timothy 4, verse 10. For to this end we toil and strive, because we have our hope set on the living God, who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. This verse is saying that God came to save all people. Not that all people will be saved. The especially of those who believe tells us that not everyone will believe. Specifically is actually the word that is here instead of especially. Specifically is a better word. The understanding here is that not everyone will believe and yet God sent Jesus so that everyone who comes in faith can be saved. And there is hope for all people. It's not just... One group of people is not just the Jews, it's not just the people that are good enough, it's for all people. Christmas is for all people. Jesus coming to the world was for all people, for God so loved the world. That's important to remember, that God has a heart for all people. With that in our mind, we've seen God as the hope of the Jews, Jesus is the hope of the Jews, Jesus is the promised hope for the world. Jesus must also be then, of course, our hope. Jesus must be our hope. As we looked at last week, he needs to be our king, but he also needs to be our hope. We live in a world. We live our lives surrounded by hopelessness. Maybe you're struggling even today in a situation in your life where, you know, this time of the year can be very hard for some people and you just don't feel hope. But you look around the world and people are just wasting their lives on things, but it's all because they have no real hope. They don't have a confident expectation that God is going to do anything. Many of them don't believe in God at all. And even those of us who do, sometimes it's so easy to focus on the negative and think about all the negative things that are happening in our life. And we forget about the hope that we can have in Jesus. That because of his blood, his death, his resurrection, which we'll talk about in a moment, all of those things can give us hope even in the worst of times. Because we can confidently expect that the promise that he made of eternal life is ours no matter what this life brings us. He was faithful to Israel, and he'll be faithful to us. I got ahead of myself. So uh, the first thing we're going to see is this. We have hope in our peace with God. Back to Romans chapter 5. We have hope in our peace with God. Romans chapter 5, again, verses 1 through 5. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace by which we stand and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. We have peace with God, and we have the love of God within us, and what more can we hope for? We have peace with God, who once looked at us and we were enemies, and then we're told later on in chapter 5, Jesus came to die for us even when we were still sinners, when we were still enemies. Jesus died to bring us to him, to reconcile us to peace with God, and that now God's love not only is poured out on us, but actually is poured out through us. And that is a truth that we can cling to even in the hard times even when it says here that you're going to rejoice in sufferings knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope even in the hard times God wants to give us hope and we can have hope in the fact that we have peace with God through his love 
Do you have hope in this? No matter what you face, no matter where you turn around and life is taking you, you can have hope that Jesus is with you. Jesus will give peace. He's already given peace, and Jesus is showing his love to you each and every day, even in the hardest times. Book of 1 Peter, many times we see this around Easter time. But the book of 1 Peter also gives us an idea about how we can hope and why we have hope. 1 Peter 1. First Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 5. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. We have a living hope in the resurrection. We have a hope in the resurrection. We have a hope that since Jesus is alive and that he is showing that he has defeated sin and death, therefore we have hope in eternal life. We have hope in what God has promised, and that is seen through the resurrection of Jesus. In verses 20 and 21, we see a very similar idea in the same chapter. Verses 20 and 21. For what credit is it it if you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if you do good and suffer for it, you endure. This is a gracious thing in the sight of God. I'm sorry, that's verse 20. For this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving an example that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was the deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. I think this is the wrong passage. Where am I supposed to be at? Uh Uh-huh. I skipped to the next verse. All right. Thank you, Jesus, for your grace. Uh, 1 Peter 1, 20. All right. I knew something was wrong. All right. 1 Peter 1, 20. Here we go. For he he was foreknown before the foundation of the world that was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and your hope are in God. That's better. Let me read that one more time. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead to give him glory, and all that so that you, your faith and hope are in God. Our hope is in God. Jesus rose again. He showed that sin and death have no power, and therefore we have hope in eternal life. We have hope in Jesus. So yes, we have hope because we know that there's a peace with God. That even when things are hard, we can have hope because ultimately we have the peace that we need most, which is the peace with God. We also have hope because no matter what sin and death try to throw at us, Jesus is greater and he has resurrected and he is alive and we can have hope in him. And finally, we can have hope in God's faithfulness. Back to the book of Hebrews. Kind of comes full circle now as we looked at the genealogy of Jesus. Hebrews chapter 6. And uh, your, I'm not sure if your outlines are correct. I think I had a wrong scripture there too. But Hebrews chapter 6 is where we are. Hebrews chapter 6, verses 13 through 20. Hebrews 6, 13 through 20. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. 
For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all of their disputes, an oath is, a, is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. So that by two unchangeable things, in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have a strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope that is set before us. For we have this as a sure and steadfast anchor to the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain, where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Jesus is our high priest. He is a forerunner that has gone forward on our behalf. We talked about this several weeks ago as we were looking at the book of Mark and we saw what is the importance of Jesus' resurrection? What is the importance of Jesus here? And it's that God has been faithful and Jesus came and he is our high priest. He is a mediator. He, he functions between us and God the Father and he's, his, it's his death that shows that we have hope, that his death and resurrection, he can justify us and say, no, he is mine. She is mine. She is, we, she is seen as righteous. He is seen as righteous because I have died for them. And Jesus sets himself up and is the mediator, the go-between, the one that is constantly reminding us and reminding God how he, his death has justified us. And what we're told here is that the hope that we have is in Jesus. It's impossible for God to lie. God has made a promise. He will give us eternal life if we come in faith to know Jesus Christ as our Savior. That Jesus will go between and Jesus is the one that gives us access to God so that we can be saved, so that we can live a life that is eternal, both now and forevermore. Hebrews chapter 6 tells us, quite frankly, we have hope in God's faithfulness. See, Israel, they were hopeless. They were sinful. They didn't deserve God's mercy, but God made a covenant and a promise and he followed through. We're sinful. We do things that don't deserve God's mercy and yet he shows mercy and he makes covenant and a promise with us that through Jesus we can have eternal life and his promise will endure. He is faithful. This has been the cry. He is faithful even when we have moments of faithfulness. He is faithful. What greater hope can we have than to know that even when we mess up because we aren't, we aren't infallible and we're going to make mistakes, we're going to sin, we're going to let him down, that he won't let us down. That he is faithful to what he has promised. If you can't find hope in that, then I don't know what else we can find hope in. Because we can have the confident expectation that God is going to do what he says he's going to do. And we need to trust that and hope in that. As we close together, then we think about this couple questions to ask ourselves. First one is where we start almost every week with our conclusion is, have you accepted Jesus as your only hope? Are you living a life now and then you are bathed in hopelessness? Everywhere you look, you have no confident expectation of anything happening. That all you see as you look down the, the pipe of your life is nothingness and despair and hopelessness and you don't know which way is up and you don't know how to find hope and you're living a life, maybe even on the outside it looks great. Maybe you've been coming to church all your life and, and you, you put on a really good face but inside you don't really have any hope. You don't have any confident expectation in what God is going to do in your life, what God is going to do uh, in salvation for you and you don't have hope. 
Well, Jesus came to die, to give his life, so that you can have hope in eternal life. He rose again to show that he had power over sin and death. If you come to him in faith, you trust him and say, Jesus, I believe, I believe in you and I hope in you. I confidently expect that what you have done and what you are doing is going to save me. That we come to Jesus in faith and say, I want to turn away from my life and live a life that is faithful to you. Knowing that even when we fail, that God is there to be faithful. But have you taken the first step of just coming to Jesus and saying, I want to have hope. Jesus, my hope is in you. My faith is in you. I believe in who you are. I believe in what, you're, what you've done. I believe in what you're going to do. Please save me. And I turn away from my life and I look to you for my hope. That is what God expects if you are to truly be saved and to experience the hope and the blessing and the promise of eternal life. Don't wait any longer. Don't put it off. If you need to know Jesus, if you need to know hope, Come to him, beg him for salvation, and then tell somebody and get connected and continue to grow in him, and he'll give you the hope that you so desperately need. Next question for all of us is, do we believe that Jesus is the hope for the world? As I said before, this world, turn on the news, walk down the street, turn on your internet, the world is hopeless, it seems so. Where are we going? Everything is going down. And, you know, that shouldn't surprise us because we know everything is going to get worse until Jesus comes back and makes it perfect again. But he is coming back. And even in the midst of the hopelessness we see in our world, God is still the hope. Jesus is still the hope for the world. No amount of us, uh, uh, you know, doing anything to try to change the world around us other than point people towards Jesus, it's going to fall short. Because this world has a lot of offerings to give you hope. If you have more stuff, you can have hope. If you know more people, if you love more people, if you have total freedom, you'll have hope. None of that is true. The only hope that comes is through Jesus. This Christmas season, throughout our lives, we need to not only hope for ourselves, but also know that God is the hope for the world. Jesus is the hope for those around us, and we need to share that hope. And finally, do we hope in the faithfulness of God? You see, our, and this goes way back to where we started with the illustration. Our life is not supposed to be marked by a wish list. God, I wish you would do this. I wish you would do that. I, know, I don't really know if you can, but I wish you would. We live a life where, really, thinking about Christmas, we've treated God like he's Santa Claus. I wish for that. I wish for this. And a lot of times we don't truly hope or we don't truly believe. We don't truly confidently expect God to really work. Maybe we say a trite prayer or maybe we think in our minds, yeah, I know God can work, but I don't know if he will. I don't, I, I don't know. Uh, I don't even know if he can, actually. I, I don't know if God can intervene here. I don't know if he's going to follow through on his promise. God will always follow through. If you're questioning God, if you're doubting God, The truth is plain in scripture. God is always faithful. If there's something in your life that is drawing you away from God, it's not his fault, it's yours. Don't blame God or think that he's not faithful. Think that somehow he's letting you down. He wants to be there to lift you up. He wants to give you hope, but you have to let him. We need to hope 
confidently expect God to be faithful. That is how we need to live. He was faithful that first Christmas day. When Jesus is born, he showed his faithfulness over hundreds and hundreds of years of telling Israel their hope is coming. And on that Christmas morning, Jesus came. And Jesus lived, Jesus died, and he lives again so that we can still have hope today. Let's hope in Christ above all else. Let's pray.